Welcome to Behind the Curtain, LA Opera's podcast series in which we look deeply at the creative process and explore opera's enduring themes and power to move us. In this podcast, which continues our Exploring the Operatic Canon series, Dr. Christy Brown Montesano takes us through the influences on the canon and helps us to examine the nature of opera as well as the possibilities and challenges for its future. Hi, I'm Christy Brown Montesano. I'm a musicologist, which basically means I study the history and culture of music, in my case, particularly Western classical music and opera as a part of that. I'm the chair of music history at the Colburn Conservatory uh, just down the street from the LA Opera. And I've been delighted to work for many years now with the LA Opera's education department and working with all kinds of communities coming in to learn about the genre. My own introduction to opera happened late. I was not born into it. I didn't get taken to the opera as a child like so many people talk about. It came in college and I took a Verdi class in my music department and I was kind of hooked. I was a vocalist. I enjoyed singing, but musicals and rock were more my thing. I was excited about a lot of things, the type of voice and the dramatic power of this kind of genre with a big full orchestra and sets and these amazing, almost supernatural voices. So that's what got me into it. Opera is really interesting because there was an actual idea in a sense about inventing it. It wasn't that there, there were theatrical type spectacles with music and sets and dramatic lines, but there came a point in Italy, there was a group of people, particularly around the city of Florence, that were interested in the idea of how music moved the affections, moved our emotions, our states of the soul, how we feel. And because this was during the high Renaissance and into the early Baroque periods, so we're talking kind of that late 16th century into the 17th century, there was a lot of humanism, a lot of interest in the ancient Greek culture. So people began to say, wow, when they write about their music, of which we have basically no examples, only descriptions and the words, but they write about these scales and these music, musical types having the power to drive people to war or to make a person swoon in love, like it had a very powerful effect on the emotions. And they begin to experiment with how could you do this and there was, I believe, a scholar named Mei, M-E-I. He was very interested in Greek tragedy and, had, and was a scholar in that. He said, I think the power is the single voice. So instead of a group of people singing as you'd have in a madrigal, he said, I think maybe we should try just having a single voice reciting the drama almost with occasional Greek chorus additions. You know, let's see what it's like when the orator, right? That idea of the power of oration, but in a musical way. So it started with experiments like that. They began to write what we might think of as song speaking. It was between pure song and, and speaking and setting, appropriately enough, uh, some Greek stories, ancient Greek stories. And the one that really was attractive to them was the story of Orpheus. And the reason Orpheus was attractive is that he was a complete boss when it came to music. Like that was his thing. He could 
play his harp and do whatever. I mean, people just went crazy over it. So he had the gift of being an amazing godlike musician to the point that when his fiance slash wife dies and goes down to the realm of shadows to Hades world, he goes there and he says, I'm going to convince them to give her back. So that's, it shows you that they were looking for something about the power of music to move the human soul through a marriage with drama. And it was such that they also began to debate, and this is a big part of opera, what is more important, the words or the music? And that will be something that I often bring in my you know, opera history courses as we think about this balance, because at that time when opera was perceived, it was Monteverdi, one of the great first superstar opera composers said, the drama is the supervisor of the music. So he felt that the music should respond to what the drama wants. You cannot take away from opera its interest in moving your emotions with a drama. And then the third thing, which was very early on became big, is the idea of spectacle. So the eyes are also going to be engaged in a way that they're probably not in the normal concert setting. You don't need to memorize any of those names, but you can know this was the idea. Like there was a kind of, let's see if this will work. When we talk about the canon, uh, we're talking about works from history that have come forward ostensibly, this is the old school idea, is that, well, they're so good they withstood time. And that means they're great, right? So like there was some magical historical filter that decided this is, these are the good things and everything else must have not, you know, passed muster. And it's, of course, that's a huge simplification as we know from all historical narratives, right? Whoever's writing the narratives makes the decisions of what to include. So there are plenty of composers. An example would be Meyerbeer in France in the 19th century. Very popular, very influential. I would say Verdi and Wagner, two big names that anybody looking at opera programs, they're going to see a lot of. They were both influenced by what we call French grand opera in the 19th century, but we've lost our taste for that. As a historian, I can say how interesting that they disappeared from what we think of as these are, these are the operas to know. You know, you do find that there'll be somebody that will come forward as representative of, and I'm going to have to say his time, because for women, there's another problem. And, and I'd like to talk about that later, but for his time and somebody like Handel in the 18th century, he was just tremendously successful. He was tremendously successful at a time where for the most part, Italians were the ones writing the operas. And that's interesting too. Handel was very good at what he did. He sold serious opera in the Italian language to the London public. When opera fell out of fashion, he began to write oratorios in English, and that's what they loved next. This is all to say, you have a lot of English and German musicologists as well. And you have strong German opera houses that will bring those back, right? Because he gets kind of double billing as a German-born 
Englishman because he did naturalize. So sometimes the history, who's writing the history begins to decide who's important. And I think France got ignored a lot because that took a while before you get strong French musicological traditions. And you also find that somebody gets the badge of like, this is the kind of thing you should write. So if you're a Wagnerite, everything that was, it was all Wagner, 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 and everybody who came after him. You get these nationalistic preferences, these filters of people they think aren't good enough. And so history is complicated. And the canon should be looked at always, I think, with a little bit of um, healthy skepticism about its absolute position. So that you could, and I think this is something that opera houses are having to think about, is it's always good to go back through history and look at some things and consider whether there are other things you'd like to bring in that you'd like to be able to, you begin to say, well, this is never put on, let's look at this. The example of Handel and his serious opera, so opera seria, that was little, so they're in the Italian language, they're very dramatic, usually mythological or historic political dramas. Like that was all the rage when he got to London. So in that kind of first part of the 18th century, everybody enjoys that. But like all trends, music as an art form also moves forward and people began to get a little tired of something. In this case, it was he was actually part of a joint stock opera company. So it was actually the public began to not really support the art form in the same way. So you get a kind of dwindling audience. In fact, his opera house failed and there was a rival opera house that failed like financially. So this happens. I mean, even with people who are at the top of their game, they have to reinvent themselves. And what he settled on was oratorio, which is a non-stage genre, but usually with the same musical styles that you found in opera. So arias with all the virtuosity, recitative, so quite similar that with the addition of usually more choruses. And the English public loved choral music. Still do. Handel was a really big part of that. The idea of the group speaking as a nation, and they liked, many of these were religious themes taken from Old and New Testaments of the Bible. They also related to some of those. I mean, this is a primarily Protestant country. It has, it likes all these stories. He took the pulse of the public where he was and redirected his skills as a composer to a genre that was like the cousin, the cheaper cousin of opera, because there's no staging and no costumes. So the idea that LA Opera is doing the St. Matthew Passion, I feel like this is precisely the kind of historical precedent that houses have to think about, that companies have to think about. You don't have to do just big stage canonic opera to be spotlighting kind of operatic principles. And oratorio often has those. They're, they can be long pieces with very dramatic music and a storyline and these big choruses to boot, but they're a lot less expensive and a lot less time. You, there's no blocking. There's no dances to be, there's no cueing of lights. I mean, you can do that if you wanna get super special, 
So, uh, you know, there were four passions written for the Bach year in 2000. It can be very straightforward. It can be semi-staged. That's up to the presenter, which leaves a lot of flexibility. But I think for audiences, it's still very compelling and exciting. It has that narrative aspect. And to tell you the truth, oratorio, it was seen also as a sacred alternative during periods of Lent in Christian nations, pentatential seasons where you're supposed to be giving up pleasure in some way you're sacrificing. Oratorios, which were often on sacred subjects, could be presented still. So you'd get your operatic musical yumminess, but with a, an edifying narrative helping you think about holy things. It was a great way for composers to still have work people to still have that musico-dramatic enjoyment, but sanctioned by the powers that be. Yes, you may attend the oratorio. So that's, that's another great thing. Stylistically, if, we're, if we do a real rough cut of style periods, if you're listening to a Baroque and even a classical opera, one hint, most of the time, you're going to hear a harpsichord. You're going to hear the tinkly little keyboard instrument that sounds a little bit metallic as opposed to a modern piano, which often doesn't show up in later operas. So you have that. The ones we tend to listen to from that period are in Italian and the Italian style liked things to be sung throughout, going back to those kind of Italian original principles. So even the spoken parts are likely spoken fast. So it would be like speech, but it's going to have pitches. Some traditions, French and German comic operas, and this is why like the magic flute, which is a classical, but German comic thing has spoken drama. So most of the time, now you can choose to cut that out, but you'll have a song and then some conversation and dialogue, and then another song or a chorus or whatever. So it's a little closer to what we think of as with musicals. That's a little closer. And in fact, the musical comes out of that kind of comic opera tradition that was not from Italy, where you could have both spoken drama mixed with musical numbers. And that continues even through Rossini, that you'll have, you know, what we call recitative, the recited parts of the music, which may be fully spoke, you know, or just spoken dialogue, but you could have recited musical parts where it appears that they're speaking very fast, but it's with pitches and tones or sung, pure what we think of as arias or duets, two people singing or trios, three people singing. So those alternate and that goes quite a long way until we get to the real 19th century, what we think of as more heart of the romantic age and there became more and more uh, a push, an aesthetic ideal of well, through composed, the music never stops. So no, no alternation between either that kind of dry recitative style that sounds like somebody speaking, but in tones fast, or they just want it to be all one so that the music may change style, but they're always singing. So most of your operas by Verdi, Donizetti, 
let's just say that there's a switch as you get into the heart of the 19th century, the heart of the Romantic age, where a lot of our repertoire comes from. There's a real continuity in the drama as sung drama, not stopping for a different style. So you'll notice also that between those Baroque operas, like somebody like Handel and up through Strauss and in the 20th century and Puccini in the 20th century, in the early, both in the early 20th century, bigger orchestras, a lot more instruments. That's where a lot of experimentation happened in terms of what we call orchestral color or sound effects in a way that you use the, the new celeste, the bell piano, because it's brand new. One of the things that Donizetti did in Lucia di Lamamore, she goes crazy. And, and he thought, how do you make somebody having a mental breakdown? How do you make that come out in music? So her, her singing is over the top, but he also added originally a glass harmonica. So if any of you have ever done the thing where you fill like a, a wine glass with water and it's a thin enough glass or a crystal and you run your hand around it and it makes noise, Benjamin Franklin invented an instrument like that. He did that and had the glass harmonica be like her echo in her head. Super chilling and cool. And now there are like professional glass harmonica players because he substituted for flutes because nobody could find the glass harmonica player. So opera was once a place of, of innovation. And that's hard for us to think about today because opera can feel very static today. The opera culture, and, and, and there's a reason for that. You can only do so many works in a season. I mean, if you're the Vienna Opera or even the Met, they get, you know, 20 operas, but most houses are, are not, their seasons are, are, let's say six, seven, right? That's kind of a happy medium. Maybe you have a few off things that bring it up to nine, but compared to a symphony season, with dozens of work. So getting representation, getting that all down is easier. It's also super expensive. So to say, oh, I'm gonna take a chance on this new work. Audiences can say, do I want to come to this? I don't know who this composer is. I don't know about this new music. I don't know about this. I haven't heard of this. We're people of habit too often. And classical music often breeds that sensation of, oh, the greats that I love to hear again and again. So you find that the opera world in a way has to struggle with its success because Verity has been a success. But if you want to enrich the tradition, both with works from the past and with works being written today, it takes a, it takes a lot of support. It takes financial support. It takes communicating to your audience to say, trust us. You're going to love this. We want to bring something new. And when they see that you take care of it the first time with a great deal of care, then you can start. But that's that's very different than just having a 20-minute new work at the beginning of, of a Philharmonic concert. It's a very different level of risk. It's a different level of risk for a composer. So I was talking about this I've been working on a, a podcast about a, a woman composer in the 19th century from Britain, Ethel Smythe. She wrote six operas 
And amazingly, she got every one of them staged in some way during her lifetime. I mean, nobody has done that. So Fanny Mendelssohn didn't do that. Clara Schumann didn't do that. Uh, Cecile Chaminade didn't do all these women that you can say, well, Amy Beach had one and it, it was never done in her lifetime. So Ethel Smythe was ferocious, but it was like one or two and it took so much backing. She was very lucky. So opera, again, the nature of it as this grand presentation can also be, it's a, it's Achilles heel because everybody has to step up with a pretty big investment into this project. I think those are the challenges that opera houses are really dealing with is how can we bring freshness into the repertoire that shows that there's even more out there that we didn't even know about? And how can we have better representation among composers and singers and stage directors and conductors? So more women, more BIPOC artists. So all of that takes concerted and attentive and conscious effort. The traditional canon even though I've said history could be incredibly biased. I mean, the fact is these are, these are works that have maintained the interest of on audiences for a very long time. And I think one reason that these works continue to have this draw is that there is a relationship between opera, particularly the orchestral part. So we're used to those big voices coming at us and look, that, that is a big part of opera for the canonic period. But the other thing is just the orchestration I was talking about, the musical aspect. Film composers learned a lot from opera. And I think that many people who go to an opera for the first time, what I would want to encourage anybody who's coming to this art form is, in addition to taking in the music, Enjoy the whole kind of machine of opera from the lighting to the way that the costumes are made to the special effects. I mean, that is all part of it. And also enjoy what your ear is telling you about certain dramatic expressions because most people, if they've grown up at all in a cinematic, which I would say the vast majority of people certainly living and working in the United States will be familiar with a cinematic. They'll go to movies. They'll have certain, you'll, you have a, a key there that you may not realize that you have, that you've heard a lot of these musical styles because they've been in the movies. And so that is an instant thing. Just let your ear kind of take you with that. It's for the eyes and the ears. I mean, that's the point. The whole thing is supposed to overwhelm your senses that is its purpose, is to hyper-dramatize a story. I have a story that comes to mind. A young contemporary composer was speaking with me to an audience of teachers, elementary all the way through high school. He and I went through and kind of described this opera and what he tried to do. This was a new thing for him. It was his first opera. So that was all interesting. And they asked lots of questions. But when we left, he suddenly said, oh, I have to go back in for just a second for the second part. He was supposed to leave, but he came back in and I'll never forget. And I thought, what a wonderful gift in a way. Just like it was, He said, I want to say right now, 
you don't have to like my opera. You have to just, no one can tell you whether you will like this or should like this. And your students have to feel the same. And I think the mistake we made is like, well, this is great music so that if you don't like it, there's something wrong with you. And I have told you that I, I really enjoy opera, but I don't enjoy all opera. I mean, I, I think that that's, it's not my favorite thing. I can go to a production and I find other things as a historian of music to be interested in, but it doesn't mean that every time I go into a hall, I come out thinking, wow, that was amazing. Sometimes I'm like, well, love the staging or orchestra sounded great tonight. So that's the other thing is it's not a one size fit all. Not only are these works all very different, the stories, I mean, do you like more dramatic? Do you like tragic? Do you want to laugh during your opera? Do you want something that's more contemporary where the stories are taken more from today's headlines, which was what opera was for the longest time. It was very current responses to current politics and social, socio-cultural things going on. Those are things you can decide. You can like one work by a composer and not like the next one. The art should be free and you will have your own tastes. And that is very important for every spectator to feel like they're you're going in to test. So the only thing I would say is if you go to one opera and you don't like it, try a different one. There's so many free accesses to music and videos. Test some things out and say, oh yeah, I really like that. Or you hear an operatic piece on a movie and you're like, oh, I really like this. Go check out what it's from. So you can begin to in a way, make your own playlist of favorites that you want to see. The other thing I would say about the canon, everybody's having to deal with this, is that some of the stories are really problematic. I have wrestled with that because there are operas that I love the music. I really love the music. And then when I see it staged, I feel the, the heartburn begin like it's it's and often if they're staged either pretending that those elements don't exist or treating them like a joke when it's not all that funny then you have other things and you have two choices i mean we we've we've looked at where sometimes you just throw something out because it's actually not worth putting on i think there may be some operas but that's not my call i can only decide i don't want to go see that opera staged again what I so I, I often think that the answer tends to be about production, about the staging, because this is an important thing to recommend about the canon. And actually, this is I should have said this earlier. This is really important. The opera, the music stays the same. So let's say you have a Verdi opera, it stays the same. We don't usually cut much. We don't change the the instruments used. We don't really change. Every, every once in a while, you get an aria cut out. You know, but the music pretty much is what the music is. So your conductor might do this a little slower, but it's very subtle. But how it is staged can change drastically. So staging is constantly our response or that, that artistic person's response or company's response to what they've been handed in terms of the libretto. Sometimes you can cut some words out of the drama of the play. 
I believe there is an ethical responsibility to think what the production is saying. How is it adding? What value added is it bringing to the meaning of the work for that audience at that time? If I'm excited about anything, it's, I'm excited to see how the programs change over the next few years. Like, What we learned, both in terms of the pandemic, which required new invention in every part of the arts world, (laughs) like so that things that you saw, it has to be done this way. That got tossed to the side. And I think my hope is that one of those things will be, I just look forward to seeing more risks being taken with new works, with old new works. So works we've never seen, but that deserve that that presentation and with works being rethought. And I'll, I'll give one last thing. I, it's not opera, but it's one of these big oratorio works, which is Ethel Smythe's The Prison was recorded for the first time, world premiere uh, recording through a Kickstarter campaign. And it won the Grammy for best solo vocal album this year. That's what makes me excited is what else is out there What are pieces that deserve a rehearing? What are things we've never heard? What young composer, when I say young, usually these are people in their 30s and 40s and even their 50s that are still like, because it takes a while to get to the opera point, right? That's what we're waiting for. So I'm, I'm excited about the next five years. You've been listening to LA Opera's Behind the Curtain. If you've enjoyed listening to this podcast, you'll want to make sure you don't miss an episode. Please subscribe and leave a rating or review on Apple iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you listen. Remember to share with your friends on your favorite social media, and we'll see you at the opera.